0: Well, it's my privilege to be able to take you into the book of Acts this morning. So if you have your Bible with you, how about if you turn there? If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you're going to find some in the racks around you. Um, And if you uh, don't want to pull one out there, you'll be able to follow along up on the screen. If you don't happen to own a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back. You can grab one this morning on your way out. I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to take just a moment. I know you've, you've already prayed once in, in the midst of your preparation for communion. I'm going to ask you to just offer up a one-sentence prayer to the Father right now, and, and that would be for this reason. Ask God to give you a teachable heart. And yeah, I'm going to do the same thing, and here, here's why I'm going to ask you to do this. It's one thing to receive information and to process it, and, and perhaps we get in the pattern of coming to church or maybe being involved in Bible studies, and we, we digest new information and think, wow, that was cool, never heard that before. But a teachable heart means we not only receive the information, but that it affects us and changes us. We, we do something with the information, Right? So let's ask God right now to give us a teachable heart. Would you join me in that? Just whisper that up, and then I'll I'll follow up in prayer. Father, I know that you hear the, the heart cry of your people, and I echo that. Give us that teachable heart that will put us in a place where your Spirit can speak to us. That You can guide us and lead us and that there will be real life change that takes place as a result of looking at Your Word. And I'm asking, Father, for something that goes beyond man's ability. And we willingly declare that, that this requires the work of Your Holy Spirit. So we invite that. Be our teacher and be our guide and shape us. It's in Jesus' name we ask for this. Amen. In my first year of college um, in... uh, in Grand Rapids when I went to Bible College. I had transferred from a community college in Muskegon, and I was an art major at my community college, and when I got there, I discovered I was not that good, right? Um <laughs> When you're in high school and people give you accolades all the time, right, you're like a big fish in a little pond, and so you get lots of accolades and you think, wow, you're really good, I can make a living at this. Well, you get to art school and you find out you're not that good. There's a lot of people who are much, much better. So I decided I needed a course correction, right? And so I decided to go into something really easy like aviation, all right, so I transferred, went to a Bible college where they taught aviation because I, I really wanted to fly, and so I entered in as my aviation as my major, and um, I decided because aviation is such a tech, technological field that was going to require so much of my mental capacity, I would choose an easy minor, so I chose Bible as my minor, right? Because here's my thinking, right? I'm raised in church, you know, from, from a little boy, And all my earliest memories were sitting next to my mom in in the pew and listening to the things that people were teaching. So I'm thinking, what could they possibly teach me at college that I don't already know about the Bible? Yeah, that sounds like youthful arrogance, right? It absolutely was. So that sense of youthful arrogance prevented me from having a teachable spirit until I got into a few of the classes. So my very first Old Testament survey class my professor stands up before the 90 of us that are in that room that morning and said, "Um, this week when you come back, day and a half later, um, I want you to prepare a chart on the Hasmonean dynasty. And my eyes glazed over and I said, "What? what? Hasmonean who? I'd never heard of these people and immediately I recognized I was way in over my head. And then the teachable spirit thing began to kick in because it requires humility to be in the place where God can work on you and begin teaching you and shaping you. I don't believe that there's probably any of us here this morning that would say that we feel like we're at the place where we've completely arrived in knowing all there is to know about God, right? None of us would do that. So God gave me a huge responsibility, a humbling responsibility when he gave me a job description. And I want to show the job description to you on the screen. A pastor's job description comes from Ephesians 4, 11. Let me show it to you, and this is what it says. And he, meaning God, gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Here's the job description. For the equipping of the saints, that's it, that, that's my job, to equip, but it doesn't get completed there. My job is to equip you in the things of God for this reason, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. How long do we do this? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Anybody here feel like they've hit that yet? The fullness of Christ, the full measure of the maturity of Christ? See, I got a huge job description, don't I? Huge responsibility. We all would willingly say we have not yet arrived. L- let me pick on you for a second, Dick Crum, if you don't mind. Can, can, can I pick on you for just a minute? Because I'm thinking you might be the oldest guy in the room. All right? Are you 90 this year? 90, 92? I'll be 92 in March. 92 in March. Okay. Can, can you stand up for just a second? I know that's a big request. Okay, uh, I'll make this really quick because I, I know you want to sit back down. But, okay, you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, right? You, you've been a Christian for a long time, correct? I, I've been the church. I was in... Okay, uh, go ahead and sit back down, and then I'll, I'll ask this question. Um, By the way, those of you that don't know Dick, he's a World War II veteran. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And if I remember right, you were at Normandy, right? Yes. Yes, at the beaches of Normandy. So you've been a Christian for a long time, 92 years old. Do you feel like you're at the place where you've hit the maturity level of Christ, the fullness of the stature of Christ? No. Okay, and I'm not outing Dick, right? Every one of us would say the same thing. See, if you come into the auditorium each week and you feel like when you look around, wow, these people have their Bibles open, they have their notes in their hand, they're like so much more advanced than I am, you would have to recorrect your thinking. You would have to look at the auditorium, any service that you show up at, and find that you're in a room full of individuals who would say, I don't feel like I'm where I need to be or where I want to be. I have a long way to go. What you're going to be looking at in Acts 18 is an individual, two individuals actually, who are maturing in their faith. They're they're in this transition mode. Part of maturing in Christ If you in any way at all identify yourself as a believer in Jesus, part of maturing in your faith is understanding liberty. And I want to help you see that through this lens of Acts 18. So let me contextualize it this way. Although Jesus unveiled a new covenant, we just talked about a new covenant in the the communion celebration. Jesus said, there's a new covenant in my blood. Although Jesus inaugurated that and he unveiled that at the Last Supper, it took a really long time for the early believers to put behind them all of their old habits, all of the old rituals, all of the man-made traditions that they were caught up in because it was so much ingrained in who they were. Let me frame it this way. If you lived in the first century and you got to know somebody who was Jewish, the person you would get to know was not just controlled or dominated by a set of rules that came from God's word. To be Jewish in the first century meant that you followed God-given laws and along with man-made cultural traditions, it shaped your whole life. So to be Jewish in the first century meant that you embraced an expansive legalism in every area of life. So to be Jewish was not only to believe a certain set of standards. It was to behave in a certain way. It affected everything you did, everything you were. In fact, the reason that you hold in your hand today the Bible in the Old Testament, the reason the Old Testament covenant was given, was to set Israel apart so that they would be completely different from everybody else. So that people could see what it looked like to be holy, to be set apart unto God. Uh, If you know the Bible at all, you know that God's design for man became became contaminated. God said, this is what it's going to look like to be holy, but man contaminated it with a bunch of man-made traditions, and it infiltrated them into their world in such a way that they became corrupt. Here's an example. You read in Matthew 15, Jesus is walking through a cornfield with some of his disciples, and they're hungry, but it's the Sabbath day, and you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, right? Well, they're walking through the cornfield, and they pull off some shucks of corn and begin eating the kernels. The Pharisees are watching him, and they spy it right away, and they run up to Jesus and say, what are your disciples doing eating this way, harvesting grain on the Sabbath? And why don't they wash their hands before they eat? And they're not talking about dirt under their fingernails. They're talking about ceremonial washing. Jesus said, you've completely corrupted the word of God. You totally missed the commandment of God. His response back to them was, you guys profane the commandments God gave you. It might surprise you as you read the New Testament to find that even the apostles had a really difficult time dropping their old habits, their old way of life, their old rituals that they had been caught up in and making the transition. I've often thought about how hard it might have been for Peter the first time somebody put a slab of ham in front of him and said, it's okay, Peter, you can eat that. Can you imagine? If you're Jewish all your life and you're told you're not supposed to eat ham, and then he becomes a believer and God says to him, all things are good to eat, Peter. You don't have to stay away from that. How hard would that be to give up that tradition? Let me give you a couple of examples that you've seen in Acts so far. If you've been part of this study, these will be real familiar to you. In Acts chapter 2, you find the church meeting in the temple. In Acts chapter 3, you find Peter and John are still observing ritual prayer, showing up at 3 in the afternoon. Why? Because that's what they were raised with. Acts chapter 10, Peter really is struggling with the dietary regulations, and he just can't get beyond it, so God has to smack him upside the head. Then when you come to Acts chapter 11, you find Peter gets beyond the dietary regulations only to find that the other apostles are shocked that he's beyond the dietary regulations and that he's eating with Gentiles. This is just so much part of who they were that they really have a hard time moving past it. Now in Acts 18, what you're going to find is another Jew by the name of Paul who takes a vow, and it's a very much a Jewish tradition. And he takes a vow for a specific reason. Here's what I want you to remember as you're working through the text this morning. Your God, our God, is incredibly patient with us. Amen, church? Okay. Our God is incredibly patient with our transitions, with our moving past the old way of life into the new things that he's called us into. Let me take you into Acts 18, verse 18 this morning. This is especially going to speak to you if you're a person who's struggling with the transitions in in order to leave the old things behind and mature in your faith. Welcome to the club, first of all, right? And, and you're going to find this to be really encouraging to you. Let's go into verse 18, and it says this, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Chantria, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. It's spring of A.D. 52. Paul wants to leave Corinth, and he wants to head to Jerusalem. He's able to stay in Corinth for 18 months, as we studied last week. And he gets to continue on his work without any obstruction whatsoever, because he got a favorable court ruling. You saw that last week. But sometime during the time in Corinth, perhaps while he's struggling with depression... Paul struggled emotionally with depression, perhaps at that period of time, he takes on this vow, and this vow becomes incredibly important to him. And when you take on a vow, you're asking for God's involvement in something, and so we find Paul doing that. Now, I just want to say right up front, it's a really dangerous thing to take a vow before God. By that, I mean risky, because we tend to fail on our side of the vow. We tend to not keep our commitments, right? God never fails on his vow. God never fails on his commitment, but humanity has this tendency to fail. But it's not forbidden to make a vow. Otherwise, we'd never get married, right? We stand before the altar, and a man says to a woman, a woman says to a man, I, I vow this before God. So God takes vows really seriously, but it's a dangerous thing to do. Well, what you're looking at here in Acts 18 seems to be what's known in the Bible as a Nazarite vow, And I want to help you to understand that because it's got real bearing on this story of what Paul's doing here. It's very much a ritualistic thing. So a Nazarite vow is this. It's a person who wants to set themselves apart for some purpose that God wants to accomplish in their life. I'm going to show you an example on the screen, and it comes from the Old Testament. It's Numbers chapter 6, verse 2, and it's kind of long. It's like four verses, right? But it'll help you to understand what a Nazarite vow looked like. This is what I think Paul's entered into. It says this, this is God speaking to Moses. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh fruit. Or dried grapes, all the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation, no razors shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of the hair on his head grow long. So immediately, when you think of the Old Testament and you think of a Nazarite vow, who do you think of? Who comes to mind? Samson, Yeah, dude had really long hair, right? Okay, then when you transfer over to the New Testament and you think of a Nazarite vow, you immediately think of John the Baptist because John's living the same way out in the wilderness. So Paul's got these really long locks he's allowed to grow out. I'm thinking like dreadlocks, okay? Trying to take care of his hair, but he's he's made this commitment to God. Vows were taken for various reasons. Here's one of them. A person desired God's blessing on something they're about to step into. And so they want God to bless it, so they enter into the vow. Here's another reason. As an expression of thanks. That may be where Paul's coming from because God's intervened for him a lot. Or here's the third one. And I think this might play to Paul. A request for deliverance. Because we've seen the work in Corinth is really, really brutal. And he's in a tough, tough place. I think that's what's going on. But we're not told why he took the vow. Here's what we do know. The vow in the Nazarite tradition, when it's fulfilled, has to be completed in Jerusalem. And that plays into the story you're looking at this morning. Paul's got this really long hair. He's grown it out. And he shaves his head according to the verse that you just read. Meaning he's keeping the locks. He's got to hang on to them until he gets to Jerusalem. Because as part of the sacrifice, you had to take the really long hair that you cut off. Your head's been shaved. And you carry them with you until you get to Jerusalem and you dump them on the burnt offering after a purification process. So Paul's got Jerusalem in mind. Here's what I speculate is going on. He's watching God's hand at work. He's seen God explode the church in Corinth. It's increasing in size. You read the book of Corinthians and you see this is becoming a megachurch. And Paul is watching the hand of God's blessing upon it and he decides my vow is complete. I've watched God's hand of blessing. He's answered my call. And now I complete my vow, I've got to go to Jerusalem. Here's an example coming from Numbers chapter 6, verse 13 about the ritual. Look with me up on the screen. The Nazarite shall then shave his dedicated head of hair. That's exactly what Paul has done, God's instructions to them. Uh, let's just step back from the story for a second. Does this not seem confusing to you if you know anything about Paul whatsoever? Isn't he the guy that wrote that the rituals in the Old Covenant had passed away? What's going on here? How can he be taking a vow so deeply ingrained in Jewish tradition and joining himself into it? Uh, it's safe to say, if you know anything about Paul whatsoever, you know that he's developed an understanding of the worthlessness of ceremony, of man-made tradition, of legalism, of rituals. Let me show you an example of that. Look with me on the screen. Look at how he wrote Philippians 3.8. I count all things to be lost. He's talking about his Jewish heritage, his Jewish background, all of that. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, watch, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, that's Paul. That's the Paul we know in the New Testament. But we're reading about a guy who's taken a vow here. The Bible is very, very clear. Observing rituals is not the way to salvation. Yet Paul, who's been raised in these strict standards of his Jewish heritage, has taken on this vow. Do you remember his personality? The characteristics of who this guy is identified as? Here's just two verses to remind you. Look with me on the screen. Galatians 1.14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. and Man-made traditions, right? Here, here's another example, Philippians 3.5. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless." See, what you're looking at here is an individual in Paul, this individual who is deeply, deeply influenced by his heritage. Why do I bring all that out? Because you and I, as we're maturing in our walk with Christ, as we're trying to measure up to the fullness of Christ, what it looks like to be a completely dedicated Christ follower, we have to remember you and I are at liberty to follow our conscience along the way, meaning what it looks like for you to reach out to God may look differently than it does for me to reach out to God to identify in that relationship. So while you and I are doing it differently, we've got to be really, really careful at that same time while we're following our conscience not to be judging others, others who may not be as far along in the walk as we are. If you want to really understand that, go to Romans chapter 14 and and read that chapter later today. That's all about Paul recognizing there's some people who are not as far along as you are, and so you can't be in the position of judging those individuals. They're just trying to make their way along the trail just like you are. It's all about staying away from legalism. Let's follow the story a little bit further so we get where Paul's going here. In Verse 19, it says, They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills it, he set sail from Ephesus. So after the head shaving, Paul jumps on a ship, he crosses the Aegean, he ends up in Ephesus, which is a major commercial center. We won't go into that today. We'll we'll come back to that later. A huge, huge city. So Aquila and Priscilla, they set about their business. And apparently, they live in Ephesus for four to five years. And while they're setting up shop, they begin hosting a church in their house. Aquila and Priscilla are apparently very successful financially, big business owners. And so they've got a big enough house to have the church at Ephesus in their home. And they begin nurturing that church. But while they're setting up shop, Paul goes to the synagogue. According to verse 19, he's reasoning with the Jews and he finds a receptive audience. Now, if you've been part of, part of the study of Acts, you understand that Paul's been to some pretty intense cities Galatia, Phrygia, Berea, Philippi, Athens. In any of those cities, have you seen a case where Paul hasn't been chased out of town by the Jews? He's chased out of every town he goes into, isn't he? Every town he goes into, he's persecuted. Yet now he comes to Ephesus, and he finds a bunch of Jews who are saying, hey, we'd like to know more. How about if you hang out with us? Can you imagine Paul turning that down? But that's exactly what you see him doing. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. What's going on with Paul? Verse 21 looks like he's hitting the gas pedal and accelerating towards Jerusalem. Why the rush? Why the hurry to get to Jerusalem? Because the vow that he's made to God is of such high importance to him. It's so important to complete it. It takes priority over everything. He wants to catch the boat. So he says, no, but I'll come back to you another time. So we get verse 22. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. So he's arriving at Caesarea. It's like a port city, right? If you want to get to Anchorage, you land in Seward and you jump on the train to go up to Anchorage. Same thing. You land in Caesarea if you want to get to Jerusalem. Well, that's what he's done. He goes up. He says that he went up greeting the church, meaning he went up to the church in Jerusalem. And he's greeting them and from there he fulfills his vow. So he enters into a 30-day program, a 30-day program of purification, puts on the white robes, Has his body completely cleansed, sets himself completely apart of all things that are unholy. For 30 days, he goes through this purification process, and at the end of it, he takes those long locks that were shaved off and throws them on the fire, and his vow is complete, and then he goes down to Antioch, 300 miles to the north. Dr. Luke has been focusing on this transition for a reason. He's got Paul as a man in transition. And he's going to show us Apollos as a man in transition for two different specific reasons, though. We see these individuals who are in transition, who are maturing in Christ, yet at the same time, they've got this incredible determination while they're maturing in Christ to make Jesus known, to help everybody understand why they're so passionate about him. Matter of fact, you see the passion come out of the last verse about Paul. Go with me to that, verse 23. And having spent some time there, meaning Antioch, He left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples, meaning he can't even sit still in Antioch. He's got to get back out there and start telling people about who Jesus is. And with those really brief words, Dr. Luke summarizes a 1,500-mile journey condensed down into just a couple sentences. Paul's on this huge third missionary journey by this point. But before he gives us the record of the third journey, Luke does something. He transports us all the way back to Ephesus to show us another individual by the name of Apollos who's going through transitions. Watch with me in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. Anybody here happen to know where Alexandria was at, the ancient city, what country it's located in? Egypt, yeah, all right? So Apollos has got this really great tan going on, okay? He's, he's from North Africa. He's got very nice, dark complexion. He's raised in Alexandria. We're told he's a Jew by birth, and from birth, he's raised in Alexandria. What do we know about Alexandria? Second largest city in the Roman Empire, 700,000 people live in this cosmopolitan happening city. Everybody wants to be in Alexandria. It's where the libraries of Alexandria are located, where Rome poured all of its money to keep records of the world history. So that's where this man, Apollos, has been raised, and we're told he's an eloquent man, which means he's both highly educated and he's very, very fluent, beautiful to listen to, Scripture describes him as. But more importantly than that, verse 24, we're told he's a man who's mighty in the Scriptures. Now, it's not talking about the New Testament, right, because it doesn't exist yet. So it's talking about the Old Testament. Apollos is someone who really understands God's Word as it's written in the Old Testament. So put this picture together. He's educated beyond understanding. He's educated and has a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament, a great grasp of culture because he's from this cosmopolitan city. He's learning, and his powerful grasp of the Old Testament, all that coupled together makes him a devastating debater. This is a guy who can answer the call. The rarity of such a person is indicated by the fact that when he's listed as an eloquent man who's mighty in the Scriptures, he's the only person in the entire Bible that's listed that way. Only one individual is given that description, and that's Apollos. See, the church desperately needs individuals like Apollos who can speak with urgency and with clarity to help people understand the importance of God's Word. So we get a little more detail as the story ends. Verse 25 says this, This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. Now, that Apollos, according to verse 25, has been instructed in the way of the Lord doesn't mean he's a Christian. It doesn't mean that he has a full grasp of who Jesus is. What it means is that he understands God's view of morality, God's standards. It's an Old Testament phrase used to describe someone who was really on fire and clicking with the things of God. Let me give you an example. This is God speaking of Abraham, Genesis 18, God saying, I have chosen him, meaning Abraham, in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. There's that phrase again by doing righteousness and justice. So we've got this individual who's instructed in the way of the Lord. He's fervent in spirit. Ever met somebody like that? That's a person who's a pleasure to be around. They're absolutely fired up. They're passionate about the things that they know. And that's what you see about Apollos. He is fired up. Matter of fact, the word that's used here is he's boiling in his spirit. Those things translate into something. They translate into action. So do you see the action here? He's speaking and teaching accurately. But notice the caveat. It says it's based on limited knowledge. He only knows the baptism of John. That means he only knows John's message that the Messiah is to come. What was John's message? John the Baptist is going around Israel saying, prepare the way of the Lord. The king is coming the Messiah will be here. Well, that's future. See, apparently he doesn't understand the completion in Jesus, nor does he fully grasp the death and the resurrection, what you just celebrated in communion. He doesn't have a good grasp of that, nor is he feel familiar with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. So what you're looking at here is a redeemed Old Testament saint, someone who's got pieces but not a full understanding. But yet, with that information, he's bold enough to enter the synagogue and teach the Jews. Now, watch this transition that comes up. This is a man in transition. He's transforming into the fullness of Christ. Look at this instruction here in verse 26. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. Well, who's at the synagogue? Aquila and Priscilla. They're showing up and they're listening, and we're told, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Uh, that might be kind of confusing to you because you're looking at that and we're being told Apollos teaches Jesus accurately, but yet they're teaching him more accurately. See, obviously what's going on here is his teaching is not complete or he'd have known about the New Testament baptism. The baptism of John is a baptism of repentance people who needed to confess their sins came to John to be baptized in the River Jordan. When you go into this tank, or when you're baptized in a lake or in a river today as a New Testament believer, your baptism is a statement saying, I belong to Jesus. He has forgiven me of my sins. It's not a baptism of repentance. But that's what Apollos knows. He doesn't know about the New Testament baptism, so they have to instruct him, explaining God more accurately. Now, catch this, because this this is the high point of this. That this mighty scholar who's powerful in the Word of God, raised in a major cosmopolitan city, studied at the libraries of Alexandria, this guy who's got it all going on, is willing, humbly, to submit himself to be taught by a couple of tent makers You let that register with you? Father, give me a teachable heart. Put me in the place where my heart is moldable and shapeable, that there's individuals in your life around you who could speak into you and help you understand the way of God more clearly. I'm not just talking about the pastors who teach. People who are a little bit longer, along in the faith who can reach back and say, I was there once, I, w- I was struggling like you are, let me, let me speak into that. Apollos has submitted himself to being instructed by a couple of tent makers. So we presume he knows things about Jesus' earthly ministry or he wouldn't be teaching accurately. But when he's instructed further, you get to see the final transformation because he readily accepts all that God has done and that's what the last two verses are about. Verse 27, watch him put the pieces together now. Verse 27 and verse 28, And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, meaning another country, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Now, there's the first clue of a transformation, right? He didn't have an understanding of grace. He understood John's baptism. He's been explained. He understands grace now, so he's helping those Who have believed through grace, verse 28, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Not that there's a Messiah to come, but that Jesus is the Messiah. So here's what's going on. Apollos is armed with knowledge now, knowledge of the gospel. And he wants to go across the Aegean Sea to Achaia. Specifically, if you let your eyes drift down to chapter 19 and verse 1, you'll see where he's headed, the capital city of Corinth. What did we just learn about Corinth last week? The very place where Paul has just come from. See, God's sending in his backup quarterback. He's sending in this powerful communicator. Paul has left, he's got his vow, he's destined for Jerusalem. God raises up Apollos, equips him, arms him, and he sends him right into the heart of the battle. There's a a number of people who have already identified themselves in some way with the gospel in Corinth long before Paul came. But to some extent, they were errant in their understanding. So Apollos is traveling with this letter of commendation, and this eloquent man soon makes his presence felt in the community. A brilliant scholar explodes on Corinth like a bombshell. And I'm not looking at this as a shouting match, but the way the words are written in the Greek language help you to understand that Apollos is so intellectually effective, he absolutely crushes his opponents. They can't stand against him. They totally are disproven at every single point. What you've just seen is the successful transition of an individual from a fledgling faith, an Old Testament saint even, into a New Testament saint, mature in the faith, who's become an immense blessing to the church. That's what verse 27 is telling us. He helped greatly those who had believed. See, Apollos is doing something that each one of us need to practice. He's returning the favor. Aquila and Priscilla had built into him just in very humble way, tent maker fashion. And he's taking that information and he's strengthening the church. So we don't just consume information for the sake of information. We consume information. We come to church and participate in studies like this so that we can put it to use. So how in the world did he greatly help and strengthen those who had believed? Catch this. can take this out the door with you. He's willing to be taught. He's willing to be instructed. He's willing to say, God, give me a teachable heart. Shape me. Mold me. Not just so I gain more information, but so that I can put it to use. So that's immediately what you see him doing. He's putting it to use. Because Apollos has recognized what very many people forget. He's willing to recognize he too is on a journey. He hasn't yet hit the full measure of the stature of the maturity found in the fullness of Christ. That's why we keep doing this. According to verse 13, it's my last verse for you this morning, just to remind you where we started. Verse four, chapter 4, Ephesians, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I often laugh as I think back on 19-year-old Mark Kring walking into college classrooms thinking what could they possibly teach me Right? And and I laugh now because I recognize at um, an age greater than 40 that the the light laughter across the room. I'm greater than 40, okay? At this age, I've just begun to scratch the depths of the knowledge of God. And, And that's not meant to discourage you to say, like, oh man, I got so far to go. It's meant to encourage you to remind you, we're all on this journey together. We're all trying to increase in our walk in the stature of the fullness of the measure of Jesus Christ who died for us and who lives for us and is coming one day for us. So I'm gonna pray for you right now. And if you're in agreement with this, I'm gonna ask you to respond. I'm gonna pray for each one of us I've prayed for the 9 o'clock service this way and for the Saturday night service this way. I'm going to pray that God would increase in you a teachable spirit. If you're in agreement with that, would you say amen? amen. Okay. With, with that agreement, I'm going to pray for you that way and pray for myself that way. Let's pray together. Father, we start where we end, uh, we end where we started, which is asking for the intervention of your Holy Spirit. What we desire cannot be accomplished just by our own will. It requires the power of the Holy Spirit that works in us. And so we come humbly asking that you would increase the teachability factor in us. That you would take that teachable spirit that we're asking for and that you would shape us and that you would use us, that we would indeed measure up And begin looking more and more and more like Jesus. So, Father, here's what we're asking for we're asking that you will use us. As you increase our knowledge, you increase our understanding, and you increase our walk with you, I ask that you would translate that over to the works of service. That we would increase the knowledge of who Jesus is in our life. That we would, like Apollos, be bold in our witness and like Paul, be dogged in our determination. Father, let us be that resolute. We'll be content with that. We ask for that in Jesus' mighty name, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.